But in preparation for that, we also want to just encourage you by sharing some testimonies of, of folks who have been faithful tithers and uh, the benefits that come from trusting God with your resources. Chris and Jade Kelly have been among those, and, and Jade's going to come now and share her experience uh, with trusting the Lord with, with her resources. Thanks. Okay, Chris and I are actually supposed to be up here, but um, he chickened out, so here I am. <laughs> No, he just decided that I talk the most, so I should use the talking. Um, and I have written something down so that I won't ramble too bad, so pardon me if I do read. Um, when preparing to speak this morning, I was trying to reflect on the passage that the Finance Committee is using that uh, we shall give as God has blessed. And um, Chris and I are definitely blessed. We've been fruitfully blessed. Um, and together, we have a stewardship testimony, and I have one that came from a lesson that he's taught me and also one that I learned from my grandmother growing up. And that's what I want to share with you. Um, you know, giving of our income was something that was really natural for Chris. And he taught me when we first got married that that was the first check I was supposed to write. Um, because it wasn't ours anyway. And so, you know, in the beginning, I am a stickler for everything being planned out and being just so. And so in the beginning, that was really hard for me because I was, I was so worried that I'm going to write this check. We're not going to have enough to meet our bills. They're going to come and they're going to say, you know, you can't live here anymore or whatever. And I'd be really apprehensive. But, um, you know, Chris was like, it's not yours. And just, you know, that's not ours. It's not even ours to worry about. And so, you know, I would pray about it and... In um, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it reminded me that not only just giving him my money was important, but the attitude that I gave it with was important. That God asked us to be a cheerful giver, not reluctant, um, not compulsive, but to be a cheerful giver. And, you know, we found that even when we reduced our income from 2 to 1 and our children went from 2 to 4, that, um, you know, God has kept his promise. He promised in Malachi 3.10 that he was going to... Um, throw open the floodgates of heaven and bless us, and he has. And so even when the, like, the money coming in decreased and the number of people needing to be supported off that has grown, it has always been there. It may not have worked out on paper, but God has always taken care of us. But, um, you know, and I learned about that through my marriage because growing up, I didn't have any money. I was the family that the church helped. We didn't, you know, there was no money to give, um, and, you know, when I was little, that was really embarrassing because, you know, you saw other people coming in with their dollars and nickels and quarters. And, and, you know, I remember one time I said to my grandma, I was like, you know, this is really embarrassing. It's embarrassing that you don't have anything to give. And my grandma told me, she said, God does not want your money. He wants you. You always have something to give. He said, You're, he wants you to give of you. And she taught me whether it was water and flowers in the solarium of the church, cleaning up after a dinner on the grounds, working in the children's ministry, pulling weeds out of a flower bed. Any of those things were ways that I could give back because God had blessed me in so many ways, not just with nickels and dimes, but he has blessed me with abilities that he wants to see me use. And that's what he wants of each and every one of us. So in conclusion, I'm just going to ask that you would pray with me, please. Father, I thank you for your many blessings, and I help, help us to be thankful in every situation and every circumstance. Lord, guide us in our diligent efforts to give back to you and help us to be mindful, to give as you have blessed us, knowing that we can never outgive you. These things we ask in your name. Amen.
stand with us.
is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our God. Sing it one more time. Our God is greater, our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome in power. Our God, our Shine your light in, 
Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save forever. Author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the Savior, I come, burn my soul, remember, redemption's here, where your blood was spilled, for my ransom, everything I once held dear. I count it all as loss. Lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. Rid me of myself, I belong to you. Oh, lead me. Lead me to you were as I tempted and tried human the word became flesh for my sin and
Thank you, Brother Wayne. Before I start this prayer, I want to pray, not for just today's offertory, but I want to pray for the next two months, the best two months of the year. We have the month of Thanksgiving, and then, of all of you know, Christmas, the month of December, which are the two best months of the year to me. For the next two months, Christians have an opportunity to show brighter than they do all of the other times except for Easter. So my prayer today is that we will shine brighter in this church than we ever have before for the next two months. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pause now in your presence to give you thanks for the many blessings you have shared upon us. We know that everything we have, everything we've become, everything we're going to be is because of your blessings and your grace. We ask that you lead, guide, guard, and direct us as we all travel through our different ways of life. And you be with us and let us spread the word and be with those who are lost and bring them to you so that they too will have eternal life. Take this offering, bless it, let it go out into the community, find those that are lost and bring them to you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.
Thank you guys. Great music this morning. Great. It's good to see all of you here today for High Octane, High Attendance Sunday. Uh, I do hope that you'll uh, take advantage of the opportunity you have to attend Sunday school today. And uh, we have some classes 
teachers prepared, people praying, ready to receive you and celebrate with your presence and, and to study God's word together. As we go through the Bible, we're in the second letter of John, his second letter. Actually, this is the shortest book in the, in the whole Bible, of all 66 books. This is the shortest, and so some people call this, instead of a letter, they call it more like a postcard. Second John, only 13 verses. If you want to memorize the whole book of the Bible, this would be a good place to start. Only, that's why it has no chapters, only 13 verses. The sermon is entitled, Handling the Truth, because John is concerned about the truth and protecting the truth and teaching the truth and passing the truth on to succeeding generations. The truth is crucial in our world today, it's crucial in our society today, because people, don't believe there, people no longer believe there's an absolute truth. People believe that everything's relative, that given any situation that that your decision might change depending on what feels comfortable or what feels right in a given moment. But the Bible tells us there are absolutes. There is an absolute truth. His name is Jesus. And we're going to talk about that today. Second John, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 and then verses 4 through 11. John is writing and he says, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in the truth... Notice how many times the word truth is used. Whom I love in the truth, and not, not only I, but also who know the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children following the truth, just as we have been commanded by the Father. And now I beg you, lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Sounds like the Gospel of John, doesn't it? Well, the same guy wrote it. And this is love, that we follow his commandments. This is the commandment, as you have heard from the beginning, that you follow love. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Look to yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Anyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into the house or give him any greeting, for he who greets him shares his wicked work. You see the focus on truth in these verses? I started to say these opening verses, but this is the whole, this is the whole uh, letter itself. This is the whole book. John is so concerned about protecting the truth. The sermon is entitled, Handling the Truth. Let's pray. Father, as we come to consider this short book in the Bible, it is included for a reason. And that reason must be because of the, the crucial nature of the truth of the gospel. And we know what that truth is. We know who that truth is. It's Jesus. So, Father, help us not only to know facts about him, but to know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Handling the truth. Do you remember the movie A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise and Demi Moore and Jack Nicholson? The, the, the climactic scene. Tom Cruise has 
Jack Nicholson, Colonel Jessup on the witness stand. Do you remember that part? And, and there's an exchange going forth, and both of them get angry, and it gets heated, and Tom Cruise says, I want the truth. I'm entitled to the truth. And Colonel Jessup from the witness stand says, you want the truth? What? You can't handle the truth. And he goes on and, and repeats all the things that he's doing to protect his way of life in America down on Guantanamo Bay. Cruz and, and uh, his fellow lawyers are there to protect some Marines who've been accused of killing a, a fellow Marine. And this is a court-martial. And, and Jessup says, you can't handle the truth. Well, the truth is important. The truth is essential. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I stand before you today to testify that we have the truth. We have an absolute truth, and his name is Jesus. And that truth makes possible a guideline that we can live by in our world today. Second John is all about truth, and I just pointed out in first and in the second verse, and then down in the fourth verse, how many times the word truth is mentioned. And it starts off saying the elect to the uh, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Well, the elder we we believe refers to John. John was the youngest apostle uh, of the twelve when Jesus was alive. He was the one referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. He wrote the gospel. He talked about love. A new commandment that I write you, that you love one another. Sounds the exact same thing here in verse 6. And uh, as, as he ages, he's, he's probably the last apostle to be alive at the, at the point of this letter being written. So he refers to himself as the elder, and he writes to the elect lady. Now, I read several commentaries, and you know they think maybe this refers to a specific person or maybe a, a leader in the church. No. The elect lady was just John's way of referring to the church. The elect lady, the church, and her children, the members of the church. So this is John the Apostle, elderly, writing to the church and her members about the importance of protecting the truth. And, and already, you'd be surprised, it didn't take long for folks to to start twisting the truth in that first century. Even, even uh, shortly after Jesus' death, the truth uh, became compromised. You know, the, the heresies that we hear today aren't that new. There were heresies in the first century, and the first heresy that I have list, listed in your bulletin this morning is the heresy of Gnosticism. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. And Gnosticism taught that you had to have a special secret knowledge in order to be in a relationship with God. And it was very complicated. And uh, it was, you know, just only a, a very few people were privy to this secret mystery and this secret knowledge uh, in order to be in a relationship with God. And one of the tenets of Gnosticism was this heresy called Docetism. And Docetism comes from the Greek word that means uh, to seem. And, and Docetism taught, and this was the, the main heresy of the first century, and you'll find John fighting it all throughout his book and his letters. Docetism said that Jesus was never really human, that he only seemed to be human, that when he walked on the earth, he didn't leave footprints. He was kind of like an apparition floating from place to place. Well, if you follow that to its, its natural conclusion then what do you have to assume about Jesus' death on the cross? 
If Jesus was not really human, but he only seemed to be, that he only appeared to be human, then what about the cross? Well, the cross was not really suffering. The cross was not really Jesus paying the penalty for our sins. And John saw the danger of that heresy. And that's why he wrote in his gospel, John 1, verse 14, the word became, what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And that's why he writes here in verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So John is addressing these heresies and he realizes that already things are, are creeping into the Christian faith and trying to divert it and trying to confuse it and trying to veer it off from the path of the truth. And he's saying, you hold on to the truth. You know the truth. You protect it. You preserve it. You practice it. You pass it on to succeeding generations. It's being left in your hands, O oh elect lady and her members. In other words, the church. Well, what is the truth? We have the answer to that. In John 14, 6, Jesus is telling his worried disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And what is so amazing about that is, is to me, it took me a while to, to realize this, but Jesus says, I am truth. You want to know what truth is? It's not, you know, usually we look at truth as a list of facts, a list of details, a bunch of propositions that you have to believe in in order to, to be a part of a certain religion. Jesus is saying, just believe in me. I am the truth. The Christian faith, Christians don't believe about something. Christians believe in someone. Let me say that again. Christians don't have to believe about something. You do not have to adhere to this and this and this and this in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You believe in someone. You believe in Jesus in order to be his followers. That's why it's so crucial to get the facts straight about Jesus. It's so crucial to get the facts straight. Pilate is standing in front of Jesus and, and uh, getting ready to take him to trial and everything. And Pilate asks that question that's been asked through the ages. What is truth? What is truth? Remember what Jesus' answer was? Silence. Jesus didn't bother to answer Pilate. Jesus could have said, you want to know what truth is? Pilate, you're looking at it. Because Jesus was truth personified. He was truth in the flesh. Our society today accepts no absolute truth. That's the way our society has come today. Uh, I saw a survey recently, and three by a three-to-one margin, it was about 60, 65% to 30%. People believe that truth is relative to a certain situation. It's called situational ethics. It's what is right and wrong is determined by whatever situation you happen to be in at the moment. And if it feels good, if it feels right, if you're comfortable with it, then it must be right. And that is not just uh, a, a survey of, of everybody as a whole. It also 
includes Christians, and Christians by a large margin don't believe there is an absolute truth. And a very few Christians believe that the Bible is the source of absolute truth. But God's Word teaches us that there is an absolute truth. There is something that we can hold on to. There is something that's absolute, and it's Jesus. Just to show you kind of what our society has accepted today, there's, there is Wexner's Center for the Arts on the campus of Ohio State University. Wexner Center for the Arts. I saw this recently in an article. And Wexner Center for the Arts is interesting because of its architectural design. It's called, let's see, postmodern deconstructionism. You probably don't, I don't I didn't have any idea what that meant, but what it basically meant was it's hideous <laughs> to look at. It has no, um, no pattern to it. It goes nowhere. It has pillars that support nothing. It has corridors that end in dead ends. It, uh, it's, just, it's just it's atrocious. Um, but, but what the architects wanted to do was, you know, not just build a museum, but build a place where people could come in and, and kind of expand their minds and, and uh, you know, have these stairwells that just don't go anywhere. You know, it's just, it's, it's ugly. And yet even that building had to have some kind of foundation underneath the ground in order to support it, doesn't it? Didn't it? Well, that's what's happened to our society. For a while, our society toyed with what was superficial and unimportant and began, you know, bending things and twisting things and, and uh, just saying, you know, well, if it feels right, it must be okay. But then now society is, is, is damaging the foundation, the very foundation. And uh, if the foundation is not stable, if the foundation is, is unsecure, then there's no building on earth that can rest upon it. And that's what's happening in our world, and that's what's happening in our society. If there is the remotest possibility that a belief might offend one person in our nation, then we are told, in order to be politically correct, we have to discard that belief. Isn't that right? If it offends one person, then, then it's not right for us to believe something or hold fast to it. I went back to the quotes, and Alexander Hamilton said, those who stand for nothing will fall for anything. Those who stand for nothing will fall for anything. And it was into such a situation that John is writing this note. You folks are, are listening to these guys who are coming in among you and telling you that Jesus was not really human. Well, you don't realize how dangerous that belief is. If, if they tell you that Jesus did not come in the flesh, he is a deceiver and an antichrist. And even then, John is trying to, to get the people in that church back on track, back to understanding what is important and what is hold, we have to hold on to. There is an absolute truth, and his name is Jesus. And to the extent that you veer away from that absolute truth in any direction, you do so to your own, your own danger and your own damage. You remember years ago, I did a sermon series called Fresh Encounter, and I had a little wooden frame over here, and it had a string hung from it, and at the bottom of the string was a plumb bob. You remember that? And, and builders used the plumb bob or even a level to, to know what's straight and true. If you don't have that plumb bob and you start putting up two-by-fours or something like that, and, and one is off just a little bit and the next one is 
goes by that one and it's off a little bit and the next one's off a little bit more before you know it you got all these boards on a slant you've got to have a standard you've got to have something that's absolute up and down and true in order to to build a building that will stand and that's what John is saying Jesus is absolute truth don't vary from the truth that you have been taught that you hold on to and don't let anyone else come in and teach you something differently because it will be to your danger. So the first point was learn the truth. How do you learn the truth? You open up the Bible and you look at Jesus. Jesus and the Father are one. You want to know about God? Look at Jesus. The second thing is not only do you have to learn about it, but you also need to follow it. You need to practice it. You need to live it out in your own life. And, and how you do that, John kind of gives us some clues here because his subplot, his sub-theme in this little postcard about truth, he says over and over again, this is love, that we follow his commandments. You've heard from the beginning that you follow love. And over and over again, he repeats his message, this one whom Jesus loved, as being a message of love. Truth and love. Hold fast to those two, those two ideals. The truth of Jesus Christ, which will provide you a straight and true plumb line, and love, which protects the unity of the elect lady and her children, the church. Not only do you need to learn it and follow it, you need to pass it on. Because any truth that we just hold on to ourselves and dies with us will leave succeeding generations in despair. Verse Verse 8 says, look to yourselves that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. And that implies don't lose it, hang on to it, preserve it, and pass it on. We have an important legacy that's been entrusted to us by previous generations that we, it's incumbent upon us to pass on to succeeding generations. It reminds me of what Paul said in the close of his final letter, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have what? Kept the faith. Paul has kept the faith, protected it, preserved it, passed it on. And that's what he wants us to do here in this letter. Know the truth about Jesus. Live it out in your life. Pass it on to succeeding generations. So that the truth, that absolute, that, that perfect moral truth that we have in Jesus can be preserved. A man came in to visit an old friend who was a musician. He said, hey, you know, what's the good news? And I think the musician had kind of a long day. And he had a tuning fork. And he took the tuning fork and he struck it with a hammer and he said, you hear that? That is A. That is the note A. It was A 5,000 years ago. It'll be A 5,000 years from now, the soprano upstairs sings off pitch, the tenor across the hall goes flat on high notes, and the piano downstairs is out of tune. But this is A, and it will always be A. And that's the good news for today. Friends, there are some things that don't change. Jesus Christ said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constant. He is absolute truth. 
and we need him because I see our society on a slippery slope drifting further and further away from that moral plumb line that keeps us straight and true. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for the guidelines we have in the Bible, so many of which are being compromised, are being twisted, and, and folks are saying that in different situations we need to modify this, or it doesn't really say this, or, or, or rationalize this away. But Father, we have your truth, and that truth is Jesus, and, and to the extent that we know him, we can have an absolute guideline to go by. And we need that today. We pray for those that are seeking truth, who can handle the truth. His name is Jesus. And we offer it freely.